good afternoon it's wednesday the 8th of july 2020 just after one o'clock welcome to uk column news your host this afternoon mike robinson myself brian gerrish we're delighted to also be joined by alex thompson and david ellis uh, packed news today uh, absolutely now we're going to get uh, we're going to start with this this uh, was an article appeared a couple of days ago in the times uh, the headline is revealed seven-year coronavirus trail from mine deaths to a Wuhan lab and the article begins uh, with this uh, couple of paragraphs in the monsoon season of 2012 a small team of scientists traveled to southwest China to investigate a new and mysteriously lethal illness after driving through terraced tea plantations they reached their destination an abandoned copper mine where in white hazmat suits and respiratory masks uh, they ventured into the darkness. Instantly, they were struck by the stench. So my first question, Brian, is how does somebody who's wearing a respiratory mask and uh, respirator mask and uh, white hazmat suit uh, get struck by a stench when you go anywhere? A lot of questions over this, because if they were in the real gear, Mike, they wouldn't be smelling anything. Um, they've got a selective face mask on that doesn't make sense because they don't know what they were going into but if it was to deal with viruses it's hard to know how they were smelling something well this is exactly it so uh, but the the it actually well we'll come on to this in a second so this this uh, particular uh, report in the times was then followed up uh, by a face-to-face -face interview with sky news by none other than richard dearlove who said that he subscribes to the theory that the coronavirus is an engineered escapee from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So this is what he was pushing. Now, I'm going to say, I'm going to call this, uh, if we put the uh, original uh, Times article up again, I'm going to call this fake news. And uh, for a number of reasons, first of all, because of that first paragraph, because they're describing that in August 2012, a small team of scientists traveled to southwest China to investigate a new and mysteriously lethal illness. So there's an acknowledgement there that there was a new and mysteriously lethal illness in existence in 2012 already. Uh, but as we've been highlighting on this program over the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, report after report, scientific paper after scientific paper, making the point that SARS-CoV-2 has been identified in human sewage from well before lockdown, months before lockdown, and in fact, uh, possibly as early, according to the University of Barcelona, as March 2019, perhaps even earlier than that. Um, so. This report appears in the Times. Richard Dearlove then appears uh, to reinforce it. Uh, and the next thing that happens is that this man appears, Christopher Steele, uh, and he produces a dossier. Now, he's very good at producing dossiers, as we'll see in a second. Uh, but Christopher Steele appears uh, and uh, he produces an 85, 86 page dossier, dossier uh, which is detailing what's described as a campaign by Beijing to persuade influential individuals to back Huawei and its strategic aims. And he said, he's basically, I summarize here, he didn't literally say this, the Chinese are influencing British politicians, academics and business people, be very afraid. Um, now, who was on the list? Well, people like Sir Kenneth Olisa, the Lord Lieutenant of London, Sir Mike Rake, the former chairman of BT, uh, Lord Clement Jones, a Liberal Democrat peer and spokesman uh, for the digital economy and a former Huawei advisor. Dr. Sarah Wollaston is on the list of people that are influenced by China. Uh, Brian, a, a local MP, uh, and uh, she was then chairman of the liaison committee. Uh, and uh, uh, John Suffolk, uh, former government chief information officer, 
uh, and uh, the list goes on. It didn't end there uh, because other usual suspects appeared, uh, none other than Edward Lucas, of course, of Integrity Initiative fame, uh, and he was pushing out a narrative, China's plan for world domination faces a hitch. That's the upshot of our government's impending decision uh, to curb Chinese technology giant Huawei's role in our next generation 5G mobile data network. The move, likely to be announced later this week, will signal a sea change in Britain's policy on China. It marks the end of decades of appeasement, naivety and greed. So what's going on here? Well, we've got Dearlove and Christopher Steele uh, operational in this. Uh, so let's just remind ourselves what they've been operational in in recent years. Of course, Christopher Steele wrote the dodgy dossier that started the whole uh, Russiagate uh, situation. And what we've got to recognize here is that Christopher Steele, when he was writing this, uh, the, the dossier for Russiagate, went to Richard Dearlove for advice. He, went, he turned to Dearlove, uh, who was his former MI6 boss, for advice. Uh, he asked for guidance about a handle uh, that the uh, dossier and uh, how it was uh, transferred to the FBI. Um, but then, of course, the same people were involved in the Skripal affair. Richard Dearlove, uh, Christopher Steele, uh, Pablo Miller, and, uh, of course, Sergei Skripal himself. So we have the same actors all playing silly games uh, at, at a, a sort of intelligence games. Uh, and so is this just... Richard Dearlove working his magic once again. Why would he be doing it? Why now? Well, of course, there's lots of discussion to be had over what's going on with Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings and so on. But this situation with uh, the Chinese and the allegations over uh, the virus plus the Huawei thing happening just a week after Boris is pushing forward with his so-called New Deal, also just a week after Mark Sedwell has been ousted from his uh, role as National Security Advisor uh, and head of all this. Um, and so my first question, but maybe you should bring Alex into the program at this point. Alex, uh, what are your thoughts on this and, and what is going on? I'm calling the, the, the Times article the way that that's been presented, fake news. I'm questioning whether uh, this virus was actually operational a lot longer, a lot before, or much before we've been told it was. And I'm very interested that the people, the very players that have been attempting to uh, deal with Trump uh, are the same people that are pushing this narrative. I think the key issue here, Mike, is that a certain clique within MI6 has monopolized the narrative about certain killer substances, both chemical and biological. And we see that in the Skripal story. It is now quite conceivable, by the way, that uh, Mr. Skripal himself, before whatever happens to him in Salisbury, was a major source uh, being used by uh, Christopher Steele for uh, other narratives as well. Uh, a small group has cornered that market, a triangle running between MI6, Port and Down, and whoever is to, uh, in the mix in, in a foreign sense. But now you're pointing out the Chinese angle, and I saw that we got some flack in the chat room on Monday from one or two people for not talking about this as soon as it emerged, but that's because we were taking a closer look at what's going on and not just going by surface appearances. The Chinese angle here has been really a transplant of the previous Russian angle. And I would flag up another senior MI6 officer of the period. Sir Richard Dearlove, when he was head of MI6, known by the initial C in the trade, 
how does his number two, Nigel Inkster, who then didn't uh, get to succeed Dear Love and went off into consultancy instead. Now, I remember uh, sitting with Brian at a previous conference we organised and speaking to a very broken military man, a former British squaddy, who said he had been one of the snipers who had been used by Inkster, whom he named with, named with corroborating detail in a vain attempt to start one of those wars on Russia's periphery. He gave me a lot of detail which, co which corroborated with what I knew from my own inside career. And some years later, Inkster then pops up predicting that there will be war with China uh, on China's borders in a very similar scenario, this time involving North Korea. And he was giving testimony to the Defence Committee of Parliament to that end, uh, just at a time when they were getting interested in David Ellis's reporting on what was really going on with defence procurement. So at one level, this clique uses the threat of bogeymen and nasty chemical and biological agents that nobody really understands in order to threaten them with, if you don't fund us, then, you know, the, it's the old communist narrative. That's what Edward Lucas is there to do, together with Anne Applebaum, the economies are coming to get us. Uh, they're not talking about the other part of, of, of what they're saying, that the same clique is funding. And uh, yes, as I say, the, the other part of it is trying desperately to start a war with Eurasia on some front, whether it be Russia or China, is almost immaterial. And even though Christopher Steele, when he was my counterpart uh, inside the business, was the head of the Russia desk at MI6, his Russian was not that great, and most of those around him had better Russian but were lower down the pecking order. Uh, I would dare say that all those involved in the current reporting have zero Chinese, and that's true a lot of, of the a lot of the American deep state insiders claiming to understand Chinese mentality. The countries involved, Russia and China, are basically only foils for a small clique, and I must stress this is not a machination which most of those in MI6 are involved with. I would even suggest that Sir Richard himself has got honourable intentions here and certainly not the, the, the level of nastiness that we see coming out of Steele and Inkster. It's possible that David Ellis would want to add something because I know he's been looking at Inkster in particular recently. Uh, David? Well, there's definitely a pattern and we're looking at the, the sort of the key aspect here domestically in Britain of one on the one hand trying to leave the EU, Frost trying to sort out what that relationship is going to be uh, that will envelop some kind of defence and security aspects. Now, whether that's in or out of defence union, I don't know. It's too, too early to see where he's going with that. But we look at the sort of the, the policies of a whole, and what Alex has just gone over there is really, really tremendous analysis. Because I think what's happened here is that this is. Well, the direction of travel is, is somewhat misguided because the outcome can't be good. And as I've said before, on the, I think the previous time I was on, if there's a war with, and this I stress, if there's a war, or if a war is engineered or whatever, whatever, you know, whatever precipitates, the outcome of that will be global government. Now, I think that the, the big factor here is, of course, is that really all along, the Trump administration has been very consistent with all of this stuff all along. So there's no guessing really for what should be intelligence people to what's happening there. And I think that the biggest issue we've got here with China and, uh, and, uh, and Russia, and as Alex has said, as a foil for tiny, tiny control groups, relatively tight control groups, it's they're not going to wear this either. So this approach isn't going to work because Trying to force some kind of a war, even if it's a, if, even if it's some kind of perpetual hybrid proxy war or, or a full-on um, full-on open battlefield warfare, it isn't going to work because 
Western stuff is is going to, you know, it's going to take a hit. Yes, I, I can't. I just can't see as this is this is anything based in kind in in what's a, a sensible approach to dealing with issues. If that you know where they're going with this, it's just you know. Well, you've tried it twice before with the Trump and the uh, and the other stuff, and it's not worked. You know, we're coming back for a third time, lucky or something. You know. Well, I suppose I suppose David, it depends on what their aim is. If their if their aim is simply to create as much chaos as they possibly can to disrupt. You know, no matter what we think about Boris, Dominic Cummings and, and, and the rest, no matter what we think about that, um, they are heading in a different direction to the direction that said, well, the likes of Dear Love and these types of people would have liked to have seen. So my suggestion here is that, in fact, this isn't really about starting a war. This is about uh, this is about creating as much disruption in government as possible. Uh, and they don't really care you know, what the outcome of it is. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot to this, Mike. Um, while, you've been, while you've been talking live, I just jotted down some notes. We've got the fear of COVID just being rammed and rammed at the population. We, we're told that we've got to be fearful of terrorism again. We've got Russia, we've got China now being pushed. We've got economic meltdown. This is a massive, in my opinion, massive psychological attack on the minds of the UK po population. And this is because that we've got a new form of government installing itself. Um, David Ellis, you, you know, you've mentioned a sort of movement to world government. That's clearly something that's there in the wings. But if we stay in UK, I think this is absolute driving of chaos, as, as Mike has said, in order to do something else while the population aren't, aren't uh, watching. It's complex. It's um, yeah. It's very difficult to see through the smoke screen, and that's our first clue. If all these people were doing the right things, it would be clean, it would be clear, it would be easy to understand. It's not. They're up to no good. Uh, now, Alex, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this, because uh, I think it was two years ago we reported uh, this, uh, that in 2007 Huawei was part of a telecoms consortium led by BT to provide high-security uh, telephone systems for GCHQ. Uh, now, the, the, the point that was made here is that, there, that the GCHQ cybersecurity team had expressed concerns at the time, uh, and they were allegedly silenced. Uh, but what struck me about this and about the whole uh, situation with, because we, you know, David, Ellis, David Ellis and I attended in the past defense committee where, where they were absolutely uh, certain that they do not want Huawei involved in, in UK infrastructure because this is seen as a security threat. And I'm asking why, because, you know, as soon as you put, uh, they're, they're alleging that, well, it, it'll permit Huawei to, to, to hoover up huge quantities of data and send it back to China. Well, any cyber analyst worth their salt is going to spot that straight away. This is just an untenable uh, ex explanation for this. I'm going to throw this once again as a potential explanation for why there's so much angst about Huawei getting involved in UK telecoms infrastructure. Uh, and that's because they can't do this with Huawei equipment. So this is Engadget. Here's how the NSA spied on Cisco firewalls for years. A special attack tool let intelligence officers monitor uh, encrypted VPN traffic on Cisco infrastructure. Uh, and Alex, it seems to me that uh, uh, everywhere we look, uh, we see that there's no problem with the West um, 
snooping on the wires, as it were, for any equipment which is made in the West, and that the major concern here must be uh, that if Huawei equipment starts appearing on the networks, that they won't have that kind of access. I think that there was some kind of double or triple cross going on with Huawei, and I think that we're seeing more of it come to the surface now that the Mark Sedwill clique is falling from power. And I don't mind repeating this, I've intimated it in, in uh, ways in the past without putting it all together, but we may as well now because the Sedwillites are on the way down and we need to put all the cards on the table. Uh, in 2007, while I was still a GCHQ officer, plus or minus uh, six months to a year, but I think it was 2007, the secure internal telephony, telephony for GCHQ, which was also the system that uh, fed into the NSTS uh, system that we spoke to NSA with, was replaced. The hardware with which it was replaced was Cisco uh, voice over IP phones. And the consortium that provided the encrypted software for our secure calls, this is for up to top secret calls, was a consortium led by British Telecom as it was been privatized and split up into various arms, and it contained Huawei. And at the time, with said will in the ascendant, we were told in internal chatter in GCHQ, do not criticize the involvement of the Chinese communist uh, owned uh, Huawei, which was a talking point then getting into the ascendancy to what extent were the, was Huawei controlled by the People's Liberation Army or how much was it a commercial spin-off, a bit like Israel with its uh, Unit 8200 spinning off to private enterprises that feed back to Israel. We were told not to talk about this because it had been cleared. Now, this has been presented by some as just the, the said Will cronies uh, deciding to get into bed with the Chinese way of, uh, of tyranny, basically, and having total control over data, a sort of rerun of how the uh, Third Reich did that with their own uh, bureau which was very good at that kind of signals intelligence, and particularly uh, getting an idea of how, what the chatter was. But what you're putting together there indicates that there was perhaps another purpose, which is that bring Huawei in to see what they're capable of doing. And uh, it, it, anything could happen from this point. Uh, is Huawei 2020 the same company as Huawei at that time? I don't think so. Who is benefiting from its software uh, who has piggybacked on the ins that it has into other crypt systems? Uh, all is up for grabs. And again, I would be very interested in seeing what David has to say uh, in response to that. Uh, David, any thoughts? Yeah, I've always always sort of saw that as a bit of a two-way door. Um, that we're looking we're looking into Huawei and China through their equipment, and they're looking in uh, vice versa. It, it's a it's a it's a you know, a door that swings both ways. So maybe the balance is, I think probably what Alex is talking about, though, is maybe that balance has tipped slightly in someone's favour and now things are, people are getting irritable. So I, I, I just, there's often, there's an awful lot of hypocrisy here with this. You know, and you've got these bods talking about national security and whatnot. And, um, and I, get, I get quite irritable when, when we see this kind of inconsistencies and these shenanigans um, going on. Yeah. OK. OK. Well, look, let's uh, let's come back to this story from The Times again. Uh, we covered this on Monday's programme, uh, but this uh, the army to be cut by 20,000 if number 10 plan approved. Uh, major problems with this headline because it's being labelled as a number 10 plan. Uh, and they said the subhead Royal Marine Commandos uh, may vanish as Cummings backs cyber warfare and uh, and shoots forces chief down in flames. And they were attempting to put the uh, onus for this. They're saying Army manpower uh, would fall from 74,000 to 55,000. Uh, Royal Marines Commando Brigade would be disbanded and so on. 
frankly, this is stuff that we have been talking about at the column for several years now. We've known that it's been coming from a lot longer than this particular defence review. Uh, and so we were making the point on Monday that this was an attempt to lay the blame for this uh, at one particular location. Uh, now, and the truth is that, uh, in fact, what happened was that there was an away day held and Ben Wallace attended it. The, the away day was held at the Tower of London. Uh, ben Wallace, who's the uh, Defence Secretary, attended it. Uh, the, the Army Chiefs or the Military Chiefs were all there. Um, and uh, they discussed the review and the military's plans for uh, the, the uh, future of the military, which does indeed involve things like uh, um, cyber warfare, hybrid warfare and so on. And I just want to remind everybody uh, of what uh, uh, General Sir Mark Carlton Smith said uh, a year or two ago at Rusi, because this is not a recent decision to reorient the way that the military is uh, behaving. Let's just quickly listen to this. Systematically exploiting instead that hybrid space that exists between those two increasingly redundant states of peace and war. Artificial and binary characterizations of a strategic context that no longer exists today, but which still drives much of our policy and legal definition and their associated frameworks. So, David Ellis, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this because, of course, there are two things going on here. First of all, is an attempt to lay the uh, responsibility for the restructuring of the military and the so-called defence cuts um, at the door of 10 Downing Street, um, when, in fact, this is something which has been in the works for quite a number of years now and has been expressed, as you've just seen, by the heads of the military uh, at public meetings uh, over the years. So um, I'll just give us what you, what you think of this situation. Well, the, the situation as it stood prior to uh, Sedwell announcing his departure in September, and there's, there's the key part, that he's still in post now and still conducting this uh, would-be defence review, defence and security review. So that, I think, is an untenable position to start off with. So the first things first is that previously, in terms of the Sedwell-May line, all of this stuff, as Mark Carlton-Smith there wonderfully articulates in his inimitable fashion, was on a set of rails. And it's only been through the combined pressure of all the all the people out there campaigning against defence union and wanting to talk about defence and security issues, whether that be veterans or, you know, or, or people in the UKC group or whoever, that has brought this to a bit of a head. Because what's happening here is, is Sedwell is set, really, by conducting this review as head of national security still. He's going to set the future defence agenda, even in his absence. Now, of course, that overlaps immediately as to what's going on with Gove and Frost and Boris politically with what they want to do with the future EU relationship. Now, there's a couple of key data points here that really need to be sort of covered, and that is that this line of defence cuts is the same line they've been using for decades. It's not a defence cut. It's unification process to defence union. The more that goes on, the more we fall into the defence union envelope. Now, the only person that sort of said anything sensible during the whole of this debate the other day in Parliament 
was Julian Lewis saying, well, we fought off this nonsense a couple, you know, a, a short while ago about the Marines being given the chop. And he was basically saying, well, what's changed now? So that's useful from him as an ex head of uh, defense committee. And what did we have within a close space of time? We had James Heafy, the junior minister there, got up and reiterated the same coded sentences that's, that, that were from the Sedwell, the height of the Sedwell May period to do with Defence Union about our collective defence and security being interlinked with our partners in Europe and our future, blah, 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 this drivel that's sort of been put out that unless you've got a, you know, unless you've got some, some considerable experience in decoding this language, you wouldn't really know what the hell they were talking about. But actually what he was saying is, is well, uh, I'm just, I've just been given this spiel from the from the cabinet office, and uh, and that's what we're doing. I don't really know what it is we're doing, but um, anyway, uh, I'm sure this defence union thing will probably be all right, you know, even if he had an inkling, because he if he did it, it just rolled all off his tongue. The same spiel that we've heard time after time when they when we want to broach the subject, and it's and it's pushed away. But that's the key thing at the moment is really. It's this 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 defence review isn't a defence review at all. It's a nuts and nonsense. What it is, it's the final stages of getting us geared to slot straight into defence union. That's what they're trying to do. And of course, all this, you know, the away day that that uh, Ben had at the tower and all the rest of it, and trying to. I think the giveaway really is, is he's trying to frame said uh, he's trying to frame Cummins and Boris and and the cabinet and, and the ministers there with this. When that's I don't believe that's the case at all. I think they're they're starting to look at defence. And the other side are getting very irritable about that. Um, well, it, it goes on because uh, obviously one of the big aspects of defence uh, and defence union that we've been talking about for a very long time is the issue of procurement. Um, and uh, well, uh, General Sir Nick Carter, was, uh, who's chief of the defence staff, was uh, giving evidence to the Defence Select Committee. Was it uh, yesterday, David, or Wednesday? Uh, and uh, well, he basically said. Brian, we're good at procurement because we bought some masks. Yeah, I, I think we have to say to our viewers and listeners that you were playing this uh, clip earlier today and I didn't know who was speaking, but I just started to laugh at the fact that we qualify how good our military is by the fact that they can actually organise the purchase of, of some masks. Yes. This is truly exceptional military capability and and then you told me that these were words that had come out of the mouth of general sir nick carter yes and and i was still laughing and i am still laughing absolutely now uh, nick carter uh, got some criticism uh, from mark francois francois uh, during this uh, with respect to uh, procurement just let's just listen to what uh, mark francois had to say you can't deter if lots of your equipment is old, tired, rusty and obsolescent because the procurement programmes to replace them are way over budget and years late. My final word on the Sunday is this. 13 reviews, decades of failure, you know, 1986, um, Michael Hesseltine and Peter Levine produced a report called Learning from Experience after the Nimrod debacle that cost us a billion pounds of taxpayers' money and we had to buy AWACS instead. That was 1986. Could we just make a plea to you? You are the professional head of the armed forces. Please nip back to the department and ask them to sort their bloody selves out because if not, Cummings is going to come down there and sort you out his own way and it's, yeah. you won't like it. Okay.
Well, Brian's response to that earlier on was, well, that was a bit cheeky. And, and <laughs> I mean, there has been there has been some backlash uh, from various people uh, about that, David. What are you yeah, yeah, well, I just just wanted to pop in there the comment I made earlier today, which is uh, the, the MP there was talking about old, tired, obsolescent equipment, which is absolutely true. But at the moment, we have got six brand new Type 45 destroyers that cannot go to sea at all or are strapped alongside the wall in Portsmouth, or they've only done between them a few hundred hours of days at sea. Um, so it's not just about um, old equipment and the procurement. This is about the complete breakdown of the operation of our military. And I'm going to say, in my opinion, this is orchestrated breakdown. This is something that's got in the middle of the military and the procurement system is dismantled a lot in order to move on to a new objective. That's right, David, because because what Marc Francois doesn't seem to express, he may I suggest he probably doesn't get it or he doesn't believe it, but what he's not expressing there is that the reason procurement is so bad, the reason procurement has got worse over the last 40 years is because, as you said a few minutes ago, it is a process of integration into a defence union. It's absolutely a process. and. It They've got to. You see, they've hit the they've hit the sweet spot of this. This isn't just about the military. This is about our industry and our efficiency within our industry to deliver timely goods at a sensible price that does a good job. Now we used to do that in the 50s, and then post Suez and building up to the Not Review. If you look on the UK UK column timeline, you will see in terms of the defence capital uh, and operational budgets there, the decline in the military that's led in capital assets being taken out. But what it's also done is it's every time this has been cut or unified, it has reduced the efficiency of the industry. Now, it was already inefficient. Now, if you cut it, it makes it more inefficient. And the, the point of this issue is the reason the Americans can make off-the-shelf kit and sell it around the world is because they haven't gone into this unification process. And they've still got industry that will make things and get on with it, which is what Russia has done, which is what China has done. Now, this model is completely contrary to that, because what we've done is we've annihilated our, mil our, our military. And at the same time, we've annihilated our, our ability to engineer and make stuff. Now, it couldn't be more apparent, could it? Because he's complaining about basically BAE and Babcock, right? If you wanted to, do, you know, it was it was likened to me when I first started campaigning that it was the modern equivalent of British Leyland, that BAE was the equivalent of British Leyland. Now, I think that's 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 harsh, but you know, it's it's the reality that we've got a, a single point company here as the go-to defence contractor, so it doesn't doesn't make an aircraft anymore. So that's a nonsense. So what, what is it? This is, this is just some ridiculous, it's untenable. Where are these ships that they're talking about, the Type 31s? They're not making them. Nobody, can, nobody knows what they're doing with them. So yes, he's talking about outmoded and obsolete and all the rest of it. But that's by design. But the unification process since it really kicked in in the early 80s is by design. This is the policy. They haven't trod national a national force policy they've cloaked the defense policy for decades now with unification with the caveat that we're not going to talk about it because the british people wouldn't vote for it 
you can't sell it at the ballot box, and nobody would go for it, particularly the, the four million veterans, friends and family, which are effectively the silent, you know, the, 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 the balance of power and the silent majority in the country. No one would vote for this. Would you vote, put it to the, you know, if they're so confident about this defence union gambit, put it in the manifesto and let people decide, but they won't. But they've, they've couched it under this defence cuts uh, uh, veil for decades now, and now we're seeing the reality of it. And the problem is, is that even Marc Francois, there, that's supposed to be a defence pundit, doesn't or won't articulate or doesn't, he's not manifesting that he understands what the proper problem is. Uh, exactly. All. Exactly. Uh, Alex. Sorry. Understand. Uh, I suspect that he does understand what's going on because in a masterstroke there, he mentioned Peter Levine. In the wake of Britain giving up its helicopter manufacturer in 85, as a, in the early stage of this process that David Ellis outlined, uh, Heseltine, of course, was pushing very hard for that manufacturer, Sikorsky, to become a European manufactured product in a conglomerate in the same way that the air, fixed wing aircraft are. Now, uh, Levine, as, as Francois mentioned, had a review there. How have we failed? Let's learn from it. I remember distinctly after the 2015 Strategic Defence uh, Spending Review, uh, helping David Ellis put together his submission to the Parliamentary Committee, and we were being asked in template questions to respond to in that uh, form in 2016 or 17. Uh, have you taken regard to Lord Levine's review and learning from failure and learning about the future? The same man. If you go to read Gerald James's book from 1993 in the public interest, or if you look online for a 2007 sworn statement by him as a PDF, Gerald James, you will find Lord Levine, L-E-V-E-N-E, -E -E, mentioned. His background is a city investor. This is all an industrial conglomerate project. It's not taking the angle of national defence at all. It is who can make a killing out of unifying British brainwave ideas and producing them internationally for a global militarised government. Same men every time. Yeah, that, that takes us to the point we need to be at. There's a lot more to be discussed over this, but essentially there's a cabal at work. Who are these people? Well, we think we have some names, but there's a lot more to it. And it's going to take a lot more digging by UK Column and our wider audience to get the lid off who this, I'll use the term deliberately, government of occupation actually is. Um, and uh, David, just by coincidence then, uh, the EU Defence Washington Forum is taking place today and tomorrow. Uh, it, be it began at one o'clock this afternoon, same time that we uh, began this programme. Um, so this is uh, a foreign policy programme at Brookings. Uh, it's in cooperation with the European Union delegation to the United States. It's convening leaders, policymakers and experts in the field of security and defence from the United States and the European Union for a, a virtual discussion uh, on the pressing security matters facing transatlantic community. That's really exciting. Uh, NATO is going to be represented there by the Deputy Secretary General, uh, and they're going to be talking about, or he's going to be talking about the new relationship between NATO and the EU, uh, which has been absolutely a core part of the, the, the discussion uh, when we uh, ask questions of British uh, politicians about our involvement in, in uh Defence Union, they keep coming back to, no, no, Britain is going to stay within NATO. But of course, NATO is one of the pillars of Defence Union itself. Um, so this is apparently the sixth annual uh, event of this EU Defence Washington Forum. But I have to say, David, you know, the United people in the United States uh, know very little about D Defence Union, what it represents and what it means for NATO, and what it means for the United States. 
Um, so maybe this time uh, some people will pay attention over there. Well, there's clearly, if you look at the, you know, there's clearly a pitch to pitch America into this. Um, whatever way you look at it, that's a factor. And it, it, it's a factor through Britain's membership of NATO. So you've got this, you know, on the one hand, a drive from the Sedwellites that, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to push this um, format for doing defence and security. But, of course, you've got this huge... I mean, can you imagine the convulsion in America of saying to them, well, we're only going to deal with one company? I, I, I mean, it's going to be astronomical, isn't it? You know, the, the, the fallout once people start to understand this in America uh, and in the, in, the Five Eyes, in the Five Eyes group, that already Trump has for quite some time said that, you know, he's prepared to, you know, NATO was dead even before he was a presidential candidate. You know, so... I think that this this factor over there needs to be getting some proper some proper U.S. attention because if 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 they're not if they're not going to wake up in the White House relatively quickly with this, um, how fast it's going to advance without them really understanding just what the implications are uh, for them militarily and industrially in the in the future. And of course, that's that agenda is being set now. One of the keys to that will be the Sedwell review that's being conducted now if it's not stopped. Uh, indeed. Now, Alex, just briefly, uh, of course, uh, uh, Donald Trump has been, uh, as, as David said, been criticising NATO in recent years, but mostly because the European member states uh, of NATO aren't contributing the, the right amount of money as far as he's concerned. He hasn't ever given any indication that he understands what the EU is attempting to build. No, the idea was from these rather loose British characters, uh, the sort of Oxford and, and City of London clique, that as part of their drive for world domination through soft power, they would be make America their dumb brute, which even some of their men in America, like Zbigniew Brzezinski, have always said, and Henry Kissinger. So Trump was, you know, as we've heard from some of the, the thinkers involved in the uh, Council, European Council of Foreign Relations, he had to be house trained because he had to be given the right message so as not to understand this. So he's only seen it in terms of business deals. You know, are, are the Europeans paying their share? He gave them that telling off, of course, when he came to open the new NATO headquarters in Brussels. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the, the threat, as David's outlined, is uh, that, that, that at some point, if, if the White House cannot be so-called house trained uh, or the front men for it get too much of an idea of their own policy, then this, this British clique, deep state clique international, is almost threatening now, well, even America can be outgunned, outproduced if the whole of Eurasia, Europe and the Far East goes into a single defence industrial framework, then so on your own heads be it, America, you want to continue with your national production, but the rest of the world will outgun you. That is the, you know, pretty much the, you know, the threat that the last stand will be the world against America for global government. That's, that's one angle that Trump might perhaps be waking up to, but there are others. Yeah. OK. Well, look, thank you very much for that. Now we'll, we'll move on to, uh, to COVID. And uh, we'll uh, have to say excellent article in The Spectator here, Brian, dying of neglect, the other COVID care home scandal uh, out of sight. The elderly have remained out of mind during this crisis. Uh, and really, this is the first time in a mainstream article we've seen something honest being said. The extra confinement they're describing, which came with the COVID-19 panic, has proved deadly. Yeah, well, it, it is good to see this, uh, uh, Mike. 
I don't, I'm going to say gently, I don't think it's neglect. I think it's worse than this. I think we've got orchestrated uh, policy that, that uh, caused these thousands of deaths of elderly people. But to see, as you say, the spectator starting to get to grips with the real issue and lead to the reporting in that world is excellent. So we're going to say well done to the spectator. Yes, and uh, an interesting article here in the Irish News. Uh, Health Service Action Plan reveals five biggest hospital A&Es uh, should no longer accept walk-ins by next month. So they're talking about Northern Ireland. This is a leaked action plan. Uh, they're saying they're saying drawn up by top health officials has relieved has revealed Northern Ireland's five biggest hospital A&E departments should no longer accept walk-in patients by next month. The Department of Health document seen by the Irish News sets out a radical overhaul of urgent and emergency care services within challenging timescales, uh, but warns that uh, this is needed to prepare prepare for a second COVID-19 wave. Uh, the first of its 10 key actions centres on reorganisation of Northern Ireland's uh, accident emergency system uh, and uh, hospitals dealing with the biggest volume of emergency patients um, are going to uh, take uh, ambulance deliveries only. There'll be no walk-in patients uh, and they're saying that they are going to set up uh, critical uh, other centres to allow people to get uh, support if they've broken an, a, a limb or or need something else. But uh, David, uh, if I could bring you on this in on this one, this seems like an incredible situation where the only, I think probably one of the only truly uh, impressive parts of the National Health Service, which is accident emergency and their ability to deal with the emergencies at scale from time to time, um, is going to be effectively taken apart at this point in order to make room for some bogus second wave of COVID-19? Yeah, the, uh, the the bogus second wave in the pandemic. Uh, I mean, this is just abhorrent, isn't it? You know, that you wouldn't be able to just, as you, as you choose or see fit or for whatever the circumstances and reasons, just go into A&E. This is a nonsense. This is, this has got to be stopped. Uh, you know, if they're going to, if they're going to try and trot this out there in Ireland, you can, you can bet your bottom dollar if this, if this isn't pulled up and there's a reversion against it, this will be here in Britain rapid. Uh, well, of course, we're talking about Northern Ireland here, so it is the National Health Service we're talking about, oh, Brian. Yeah, it's, well, yeah. What, David? Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, I was going to, yeah. I was getting you, yeah. what your thoughts on this? Because, because uh, you know, the, the story of, of the deaths, as, as I think we've established over the last few weeks, is that the deaths really started uh, once the lockdown came into place once the National Health Service was reoriented into COVID-19 mode and everything else got forgotten about. And not, but the one thing that was still there to some degree was accident and emergency. Now, lots of people weren't taking advantage of it. And so we didn't only see people dying in care homes. We also saw people dying in their own homes of heart attacks and strokes yeah. uh, because they didn't feel that they could go into hospital. Now, what they're doing is they're saying, actually, we are now closing the doors to you in the hospitals, except if you come in in an ambulance. So if you're if you have suffered a stroke and we've been given the message over the last few years that uh, stroke patients need to act fast. Time is critical. Uh, you get your yeah, partner to get you in a car and get you to accident emergency yeah. as quickly as possible. That's no longer an option. You've now got to wait for the ambulance to turn up first. Yeah. More people are going to die. And this is not this is not accident. Uh, the policy is not an accident. It's not incompetence. We are dealing with a calculated policy which is coming through here. This is what people have got to understand. We are being attacked by 
our own government or at least elements who are driving the government at the moment and they're going for the military they're going for the nhs they're going for education they're going for the pillars of this country because that is how they're going to get in the new order yeah, absolutely now uh, let's just bring this on screen now of course uh, mark said well in september disappears as national security advisor uh, david frost takes up that role uh, but in the graphic that we had for this we included the uh, joint biosecurity center um, and uh, this now this organization is now being put in charge of uh, the uk's COVID response uh, so SAGE uh, will now start taking a back seat. Some people may view that as a, a positive step because uh, many people question whether SAGE has done a good job in the last uh, few months. Uh, but uh, the Joint Biosecurity Centre, well, we actually don't know anything about it because it hasn't formally been stood up yet. We don't know who's going to be uh, involved in it. We don't know exactly what its role is going to be other than to monitor the data and provide the, the policy direction. Um, but Alex, uh, let me just just very, very briefly, if you wouldn't mind, um, I, I've put this under National Security Council because it has been, although it isn't formally stood up, it has been described as effectively an intelligence agency. Um, do you think that's that's a fair assessment? Yes, if only in staffing terms, because a lot of the senior people are going to be drafted in from the three prior intelligence agencies. It's basically Britain's Department of Homeland Security, not in exact functional equivalent, but in the way that after a big incident, a new agency is stood up, which laterally draws the previous expertise into a new culture in a new building. Perhaps they'll be housed in or near the cabinet office. That would be a big clue. And they get to set the line. So it's controlling the narrative again, such as, you know, with David Frost being national security advisor, he'll probably be a less bad one than the previous ones. But why do we have one? It's overshadowing the professional intelligence analysis of the Joint Intelligence Committee, which Britain was first in the world to set up in the 1930s and which was brilliant and admired and copied by many. Suddenly, America and then Britain set up this post. The American one is called the Director of National Intelligence, DNI. 2004 then we set up the as one of Cameron's first acts in 2010 in his first few days we set up the equivalent thing with this National Security Council and advisor it's all to control the narrative and the perception particularly the politicians within the bubble they're now captive so anything they're told about COVID reality will be a filtered reality through this new agency yeah well couldn't put it more concise than that now we're on the stops for time but uh, I had changed what I was preparing for the news today because somebody uh, said take a look at this and uh, it's a headline from a national paper this is what you get asked on a 45 minute NHS test and trace phone call and a clinical contact caseworker explains what happens when you're contacted well where's this come from well it's come from the express here's the glossy headline plus a few adverts but I nearly missed it and luckily I didn't what was I looking at this is an article by the UK government. Uh -huh. It's by the UK government. This isn't an article at all. This is something very different and dangerous. So let's just very quickly get into it. Uh, this is the main star, Gurinder Singh. Um, he's uh, part of the NHS test and trace outfit. He's been happy to take up a job. Um, but we discovered pretty quickly he was also working as a tutor with the University of Reading. So this is what he's quoted as saying in the paper. Often I'm the first person that someone who's tested positive will have spoken to. 
So it's important to dedicate the right time to go through the contact tracing steps as well as to provide advice, reassurance and support. The training I've received has been fantastic. So, so he's not an expert at all. He's just been given a little bit of training. Yeah, he's just an ordinary member of the public that has uh, stepped up to save the country from certain death with COVID. Now, this is part of the article. It says typically calls last around 45 minutes. Firstly, he explains who he is and where he's calling from. Then he explains the importance of isolating and sharing contacts because it's the only way to stop the transmission and quickly return to normal. There is no other way. Good. So this is not an article. It's government propaganda. This is the only way. You must obey. You must do as you're told because it's the only way. Mm. So he asked people when their symptoms first started. Furthermore, he asked questions to understand if people have any existing health conditions so he can provide further support if they need it. This is a loving, caring phone call, Good. you understand, Mike. And presumably he's a bit embarrassed because soon he won't be able to send them to A&E if they need some urgent <laughs> help uh, because uh, they're not allowed in. Next comes the tracing bit. This is the words of the paper. This uh -huh. is not my summary. Uh, Garinda builds up a picture of who a person has been in recent close contact with in order to get the right contact details. This is 45 minutes of questioning, uh -huh. not five minutes, not 10 minutes. This is a grilling of a vulnerable person who's been locked up and that's admitted in the article. So I think something's going on. But let's get into the University of Reading because this is where this gentleman works um, as a tutor in pharmacy. And we find that the University of Reading is right in the whole structure of COVID. I encourage people to go to their site. If you go to this segment on their website, you will see they're into everything. I just selected this because alongside all the scientific and the research work, they're into, well, I think it's controlling the media. So very interesting that one of their own team should star in a government propaganda piece, which the public would think was a normal article. That supporting teachers in reopening schools debate, does this mean that they're <laughs> helping teachers with the narrative that they're going to give to the pupils whenever they come back to school? Well, I would suspect it could be, Mike. There's so much here. If, if any of our listeners and viewers can help us out with research, this is a gold mine. So this article is not an article. This is pure government propaganda. And I just want to end with this, which I thought absolutely phenomenal. Here's the University of Reading back in May researching the dangers of lockdown on people's mental health. And what do they say? Well, it's down at the bottom here. Let's bring it up on screen. Um, however, people with pre-existing mental health conditions saw their symptoms get significantly worse. Yeah. So this university has known since May that the government's lockdown agenda has been very dangerous for people's mental health. But what have they done to promulgate that concern and fear? Nothing. And uh, I couldn't pass this one uh, without mentioning it. But as I got into what they were into, they're currently using llamas for some form of testing. And I think the patch on this animal's neck is presumably shaved uh -huh. where they're removing blood. And the university says, don't worry because we're looking after our little herd of llamas. I'm not so sure. Maybe the llamas are being treated like the British public at the moment uh, in the farming capacity. 
And uh, I'll end this segment with this one, uh, that suddenly apparently who has got its thinking wrong, and we've now got COVID that can be spread by uh, small particles in the air. And so we've got problems in crowded, closed or poorly ventilated settings. Now, one of those settings might be the London Underground. Uh, that's very interesting. But also that's a setting of a care home, which you've mentioned. So elderly people deliberately closed into dangerous settings. But the twist on this is that, oh, no, this is going to mean more masks. Absolutely. So. We'll end with the fact that we've had an astonishing response to the fundraiser for, for Ian Crane. In fact, it's been moving so fast, I'm going to be behind the scenes now. About an hour ago, it was on 26,813. Thank you all so much. Utterly fantastic. And uh, I'll just say it's been agreed that if, um, if Ian uh, become, when Ian becomes fit, let's use the right language, when Ian becomes fit, um, remaining funds will be there for other individuals suffering similar problems or deserving cause. So at the moment, that fundraiser is going to continue to raise money because ultimately it will all be put to good use. Mm. Uh, if we could just uh, yep, pop yep. by this one, Mike, I just want to end oh, on see. it. Uh, that's it. I just want to end on uh, one slide here, if I can call it up briefly. I think after today's news. Right, so we which, just get which, it. which one is it's it? It's third from the end. That's that one. It. That's yeah. Oh, one. yes. OK. I was wondering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. We had to show you this because we're talking some very serious stuff. A big thank you to somebody who said, Brian, I've got some pictures for the UK column. Would you like them? I said, yes, please. Let's have a look. Uh, this is Bigbury in South Devon, uh, where you can go from Bigbury Beach, which actually is a very big beach, but you can go across a small shallow bit in order to get to Burr Island. And how do you do it? Well, you take a sea tractor, uh, which is a vehicle uh, well above the water with very big wheels. Now, why am I showing you this? Because this is the picture that really took the biscuit. Um, have a close look at what's going on here, because we've got face masks, sea, sunshine and fresh air in order to get people on a tractor over to an island. Oh, yeah, because that's yeah. public transport. Of it's, course. it's public transport. <laughs> and I mean, this is madness. This is madness. And just to make sure you understand what it's about. Uh, here's the boat close up and those poor blokes trying to run a business to take people across yeah. to an island have got to wear face masks. And let's look at the guidance that's been flagged up on social media. This is genuine government guidance. The effect of the benefit of using a face covering to protect others is weak and the effect is likely to be small. Sorry, the evidence. So, sorry, evidence. Yeah, evidence. The evidence yeah. of the benefit. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Indeed. the evidence. And um, the BBC News is pointing out that the oceans are now in trouble because some uh, 120 billion uh, face masks are being ditched into the oceans, causing problems for whales. Uh, gentlemen, I'm going to say to you, we're right on the stops for time. Have you got any last minute comments? Very short. Alex first. Uh, just to say that I think if we wake up out of this, we're going to have to all wake up together. I'm noticing some dissent here in the Netherlands with wearing masks on public transport. Every time I take it, there's a few more dissenters. So keep it up. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, David? If 
escalate your escalate your volume if you can. If you put a letter out to your MP every now and again, increase that interval. If you do a couple of tweets a day, escalate it to ten. You know, if you if you do something on Facebook, escalate it. But please, please focus this onto the MPs. There's only a few weeks before they leave for the summer recess in August. So if we don't start making some headway into these bigger these bigger issues before they trot off for their holiday, they'll only be there when we come back in September. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you for that, David. And I'll just end by saying we can make a difference, but it requires a very large number of people to get stuck in and to challenge this orchestrated madness, the smokescreen of chaos, whilst this country is dismantled to be transformed into somebody else's new world. So we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. The team will be back at the same time on Friday. Bye-bye.